What's behind my bastards? Hello, fellow fan of Robert Evans. I am BZ Douglas, and thanks for hopping into my podcast feed. I am jumping in front of the actual content that you crave for a real quick plug that I hope you won't 30 seconds skip. About a year and a half after interviewing Robert and rebroadcasting this, his audiobook, I decided to become a journalist myself. This was back in June of 2020, and you can find my work since then at bzdouglas.substack.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at bzdug. The big reason I wanted to jump in here real quick is to let you know that this month I released a new documentary series called State of Injustice. It focuses on exposing systemic abuses by the Ohio police, starting with the city of Euclid. You can think of it as a behind the bastards of Buckeye State law enforcement. This project is executive produced by Black Lives Matter Cleveland, who is wholly separated from the BLM Global Network and their nonsense and actually does meaningful work. And we have a crowdfunding campaign for the pilot season that ends on March 24th. You can watch the first two episodes and learn all about the series and the project that we're trying to do at stateofinjustice.com. Thank you so much for listening. And now, on with the show that you actually came for. Today, my guest is Robert Evans a journalist and host of the Behind the Bastards podcast. I first noticed Robert's work when he was writing for Crack.com. It's a comedy site that does a surprising amount of important reporting and political commentary. Um, When I first discovered him, this was back in 2013, uh, and the piece was entitled Six Myths About Drone Warfare That You Probably Believe. And that article actually kicked off a really long series uh, that came to be known as Crack's, quote, personal experience articles. And they ran uh, a gamut of just firsthand accounts of what it was to be a sex worker, both voluntary and involuntary. Um, Ukrainian rebels, uh, drug dealers, undercover agents who were trying to bust drug dealers, And that also eventually evolved into a podcast. Then in 2018, uh, in the spring, Evans kicked off a new show, his current show, Behind the Bastards. The basic format is he will research and profile some of the worst people in history and then uh, explain and go through what he's uncovered to a guest that's coming in cold, uh, usually a comedian, and they try to lighten the mood which is very necessary when you're dealing with talking about just the most terrible people there are. So um, in addition to that, Robert has also done some really extensive reporting for Bellingcat.com. It's a relatively new but important journalistic outfit I recommend everyone check out. He has penned an in-depth report on the radicalization that is occurring through online subcultures, and that is a topic that became incredibly important just Very recently, after I recorded the interview, I recorded it on uh, March 10th, five days later on the 15th, the Christchurch, New Zealand mosque massacre occurred. And the following day, Evans published a following up piece on Bellingcat and then was quoted in the Washington Post 
in a piece that was covering the attack. Um, another thing I, I have to call out that was uh, extremely prescient relating to that attack was the subject of Robert's podcast on the week leading up to it. Uh, it was about a man I'd never heard of named George Lincoln Rockwell. Uh, Evans calls him the grandfather of all modern fascists. And over the course of three episodes, Evan just lays out the what this man originated and and what his legacy was. This is uh, the man who was the original Holocaust denier. He coined the term white power, and he devised tactics that fascists and their sympathizers continue to use to this day. It is highly irrelevant, highly essential. Um, I could go on and on, but uh, I'll put everything in the footnotes for this episode. Um, be sure to follow Robert on Twitter at IWriteOK. He uh, also has a GoFundMe that I will link to. It is something we will talk about towards the end of the episode. And one last thing I just want to say to uh, anyone uh, new to the podcast. Normally, uh, or what I've been trying to do is have uh, musicians on on Mondays. Uh, this week, the uh, guest I have is Kate Hart. Uh, she's a Cleveland uh, pioneer in the genre of nerd folk, and I promise she is a delightful chaser to some of the heavier topics that Robert and I get into. Um, though uh, she and I do discuss the apocalypse for a bit, but it's, you know, it's in a fun way. Anyway, uh, now on to my interview with Robert Evans. Raised in Oklahoma and Texas, is my understanding, and yeah. you've you've mentioned in some sh and shows here and there that you were much more conservative and, and right wing uh, in your younger years. Did that stem from like the prevailing culture of the community, or was that more like in your immediate family? That I mean, the culture definitely had an impact because Texas is a very uh, conservative place. But more than anything, it was my family. Um, we they are religious; they are Christian. But we never regularly went to church. There would be like a year here and a year there where we'd go to church most Sundays. But it was never a huge part of our lives. So I would say that my family's religion was conservatism. Um, they were very dyed-in-the-wool Republicans. My dad was a big Pat Buchanan fan. They think Reagan was the best president the United States ever had. And they were very much in love with George W. Bush and big supporters of the war on terror. I remember watching the movie 300 with my dad. And him explaining to me how it was a perfect analogy for what uh, the United States was doing in Iraq. Um, so that's, wow. that's sort of like I, when I was a kid, I love I love Starship Troopers today, and I love it as a kid. But when I was a, when I was a kid, I did not get the joke. Um, yeah, I just listened to a podcast. Uh, I think it was a uh, Chapo Trap House. It was an old episode where they they did a deep dive analysis of what was in that movie, and they talked about that specifically about how many people just did not get the irony. Yeah, I think Paul Verhoeven understands America better than pretty much anyone who's ever made movies about America. Uh, he understands Republicans very well. Uh, well, I'm not entirely sure where you identify on a, on a political axis now. I mean, I know that you're anti-fascist and you're pro-gun and fairly skeptical of capitalism. Um, yeah. I'm curious, what are some of the plot points on, on your political journey away from conservatism? Uh, I mean, the biggest one was going away for college, and it was nothing about 
most of my classes didn't have an impact on that because I was getting a criminal justice degree, so it was fairly conservative too. But I took Arabic as well. And talking to my teacher, Yasser, was a Syrian from Aleppo. Um, this is obviously before the Civil War started. Um, but getting to know him and getting to know about uh, Muslim culture, that was one part of it. And the biggest part of it was, you know, as, as soon as I got to college, I started dating a girl, a Native American girl, and I made one of my best friends in college was a Mexican guy, and I had a couple of friends who were black. And it was the first time, it was not like, where I grew up was actually pretty diverse, Plano, Plano uh, East Senior High. Um, but I would say most of the people who weren't white were uh, Indian, like like uh, subcontinental, and uh, uh, Chinese, Japanese, like that was, was probably like a good third of the school, it seemed like. Um, and everyone was kind of similar ideologically. So meeting people who were uh, Black, Hispanic, and Native American and talking to them about their lives and meeting people who were also gay and talking to them about their lives and, like, the bullshit they had to deal with. Um, was, I, I, by the time I came home from my first semester in college, uh, I was no longer identified as a conservative. And I was kind of libertarian for a while. Um, a year or two, and I, I don't know, I just sort of slipped over the next couple of years into, um, you know, I w there was a time where I was just sort of generically progressive. Uh, you know, I voted for Obama a couple of times. I still think, you know, it was the best choice available. Um, I would say now I identify uh, as an anarchist more than anything else. Uh, democratic confederalism would be the ideology that I think is most likely to build a society that I would feel most comfortable in. Um, oh, I, I've never, I've never heard of that one. I need to look that up. I, I, I feel like I've moved more towards anarchism. A big reason for that was I was living in New York when Occupy happened. Yeah. And I just immediately recognized like, Oh, this is historical and was just down there and witnessing and participating as much as I could. And that's when I first learned that anarchism isn't just nobody's in charge of anything. And yeah, yeah. There's actually quite a lot. To it. Um, so I believe in minimal restrictions on the individual, um, but I also believe in a strong social safety net. I don't think, I think, I don't consider money to be equivalent to freedom. Um, and I think that people are more free, even if they're higher taxed, when they don't have to worry about health care uh, or winding up on the street or starving to death. Um, I think that provides more freedom to individuals. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing that frustrates me with, um, you know, the yeah, that basic freedom argument. It's like right now in this world, I'm not free to pursue a freelance career as a web developer because I need the health insurance. I have a family and two kids. So yeah. I, you know, there's all sorts of stifling, I feel like, in business from from a lot of these policies right now that are that are coming or policies we're not having enacted because of resistance to socialism based on this at just abstract call for freedom um I don't, I, I don't know if i missed it where did where did you say you went to college uh I, the first year of college i went to sam houston state university for criminal justice then i switched to psychology for the next year year and a half maybe that i was full-time in school uh, at the university of texas at dallas and then I dropped out of college. As soon as I started, when I was 20, I started working for Cracked. I started interning at Cracked, and I got a job writing full-time as a tech journalist for a very little website. Um, and I just, I pretty much instantly dropped out of school. I was also going to EMT school at the time, and I finished the school, but I never did my clinical rotations because I just sort of made the decision that now that I was making money writing, I should throw all of my effort into that. 
So you came up, uh, and this that was a perfect little segue into like the crack stuff. Uh, I was curious about because you you already answered the question. I was, I was wondering like when did you get interested in journalism as a career? It sounds like you kind of fell into it. Um, did, so did you come up through Cracked through the forums, just the way they opened the open submission system? You no, know, I didn't. I uh, I knew I wanted to be a writer from a very pretty early age. I would say 15 or 16. I was pretty sold that that was the thing I wanted to do. Um, but I was more drawn to fiction at that point. That's kind of what I thought I would wind up doing. Um, I uh, When I... Sorry. What, 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 oh, yeah. The, how I came up through Cracked. I, I, they had a an internship program. And it was an unpaid internship, and I saw it and I applied. And at that point, I was writing a a column for free for like some dinky little nerd culture website, and um, I just sent back a couple of things I'd written along with an application to Jack O'Brien. And I to this day, I really don't know why he picked me. Uh, but he did. I'd never really done anything on the forums. I hadn't written any articles for them. I hadn't pitched any articles for them. Um, I I wrote like a pretty like a, like I was a big fan of Cracked. Obviously, I, I'd been reading uh, David Wong stuff since I was twelve, thirteen. Um, so that was the main draw to me at first wow. was like that it was his site. Um, but I don't know why to this day, and I still work with Jack. I still have no idea why he picked me. Um, and I yeah. don't really remember what I sent him other than that. I'm sure I was like, please, for the love of God, let me do this. Um, I'd had, it, I almost didn't apply. It was one of those things. I was, I was teaching special ed at the point and I hated my job. And I basically went to a Burning Man regional, my very first one, and took a bunch of MDMA with my friends and uh, it was like the first time in my life that I spent like a solid six hours without anxiety. Um, mm. And so it was really like I just saw very clearly like this is where you need to go in order to this is what you need to do in order to get to where you want to go and all this stuff. Uh, it just was clear that like, OK, well, there's like a, a pathway of things that I do if I want to be able to write for a living. And I came back and immediately applied to crack and I got the internship. And I started writing articles for them. And by the time I had three or four articles, for them, my first article for them was a huge hit. Um, uh, it, it did. Yeah, I was trying to dig that up, but sometimes their archives are tricky. Like if you click on an author to find their stuff, there's things missing. Yeah, what was your first article? Uh, it was about animals getting high. It was an, like a list <laughs> of animals that did lots I of I remember stuff. that one. Oh, no, I sorry. No, no, one. no. That was my second. My first was uh, products you won't believe are legal. Um so it was like uh, flamethrowers and Tannerite and stuff that like people would be shocked to learn are completely legal. Um, yeah. So, you know, back then, Cracked Articles, I think my first article by the time it was two weeks old had like four million views. Um, so I sort of was able to parlay those numbers into a job doing tech journalism because the guy just saw the numbers that I was getting and was like, oh, maybe he can do that for my site, which I didn't. I, I did okay. I had that job for about two years and then the industry collapsed. Because um, Google, one of Google's updates, basically, there used to be like a bunch of different little tech journalism sites, and 60% or more of what we wrote was just rewritten press releases or rewriting the original journalism done by the couple of good sites out there, like TechCrunch, and like 40% hmm. would be opinion stuff, and we could make a good living doing that for a while, 
and then Google kind of wiped out the industry with an update and traffic collapsed. Uh, but by the time traffic collapsed with that, uh, I had pushed far enough at crack that I was able to just sort of kind of seamlessly transition into doing that full time. Um, but I do, I learned a lot doing tech journalism. Like it was, what I wrote was not very good. Uh, the website was not great. We were not doing high quality journalism. Um, but I got to, I, I went to my first, I went to CES and the Mobile World Congress and, uh, PAX. So I started going to conventions and doing interviewing people and like getting on the ground and doing on the ground journalism and stuff. And I really loved that and realized that that was something I really wanted to do more of in my life. Yeah. Um, I think my biggest hit article was the day after the iPad 2 came out. Um, I bought one and I took it to Guatemala and hiked up a volcano with it and like used it and like took a bunch of pictures and stuff. And I wrote an article about that and it, it did pretty well. Um, a bunch of people rewrote it and covered it and stuff. But other than that, I did not have an illustrious career as a tech journalist. So what led you to um, pitch Jack on uh, the personal experience stories? I was reading an article about it in Forbes uh, preparing for this, and uh, it, I, I, it said in there that you, you kind of had to push him into it or convince him it was a good idea. What, yeah. what, what was your pitch? I mean, so Jack O'Brien is the best people manager I will probably ever work with. And I had been freelancing for crack full time for about two years, maybe at that point, maybe closer to three. Um, yeah, I think more like three. And when I was in India, you know, working remotely and stuff, I got an email saying they wanted to bring me on as a salaried employee. Uh, and what Jack did, he because this happened to a couple, Tom Ryman came on right around the same time I did. And when Jack brought us on, he immediately took away everything we'd been doing. Um, so all of the tasks I'd been doing went on to another freelancer and I had no work to do. And like, that was his way of being like, figure out something new to do that we're not currently doing. Um, and we'd run a couple of articles that were kind of like PE articles at that point. Uh, Chris Rademile had written one where it was like things you should know about your car. Cause he, he like designs engines for a living. So like he did an article about like that, where it's like, I have all this practical knowledge because of my job. I'm going to write an article for you. Um, and we've done like one or two things like that. Uh, and I had the idea of sort of crowdsourcing our, our huge amount of contributors to like find people who have experiences that we could turn into like a series of, you know, here's what a cop says about how to defend yourself. Or, you know, here's what uh, a, a garbage man but like, like doing stuff like that was kind of the idea. Like they'd be tips for life based on people's career experiences. Um, but then when I was right after I'd gotten back from India, before I moved out to L.A., I was in Austin for a while. And I met a guy who made swords for a living, as a bladesmith. And we'd had an article that had gotten accepted from a con man named Mark uh, about who claimed that he made swords and armor and stuff. And we realized after the article was accepted that he was just a liar. And most of what he'd said was made up, but we were interested in that, the idea. So I meet this actual guy and I go to his forge and like see him doing stuff. And I interview him a bunch and I write an article and we publish it. It does really well. And um, so that was sort of my proof of concept to Jack. So, like, I want to try doing more stuff like this. So we started a forum thread trawling for people's experiences and we started a tip email. And my intention at the start wasn't to do really journalism. 
Um, but that very quickly, I think the first article where I really did something like that was um, the, the article with the drone pilot, where I was like, oh, this is like important. Oh, that was the first one I read when I was going back through the, the PE archives to re yeah. re-familiarize myself with your stuff. That was always one that stuck out for me as yeah. like, wow, this is amazing, these sorts of insights. I would say that was like the first real piece of journalism I did for Crash. Um, so, so as you, oh, go ahead. Uh, no, you're well, I was going to ask, uh, so as you've fallen into journalism, um, is there someone that, is there anyone that you've seen as like a model or principles um, as you've, you know, started to realize like, oh, this is what I want to do, but you didn't go through, you know, like the formal training for it is, uh, I'm just curious what your process of, of developing your style of journalism has been and, and who you look to for like who's doing it right. I mean, I was always a huge fan of Hunter Thompson, and I don't really normally do gonzo journalism. I don't have the uh, the writing chops for that sort of thing. I've done a couple pieces like that, but I, I will say Jamie Loftus is a better gonzo journalist than I'll probably ever be. But he was a big, you know, in, inspiration in terms of, like, that understanding that, no, you just have to throw yourself into situations, you know, uh, in order to report on them and understand them, and that that's, like, the essence of journalism is shoving yourself into a place until you know enough to tell other people about it. I'm a huge fan of Jake Hanrahan, whose podcast, Popular Front, is probably the best conflict journalism podcast that I'm aware of, uh, and I'm hoping to work with him some in the future. He's, a, he's really good. Um, but the biggest, my biggest influence as a conflict journalist, which is what I primarily consider myself now, is um, uh, Sebastian Younger, um, who wrote a couple of fantastic books. Uh, one called War, which is about, he was embedded in a unit with a unit of the army in the Korengal Valley and saw a tremendous amount of combat, stayed in touch with those guys afterwards to like see how it affected them, you know, years down the line. Uh, and he wrote another book called Tribe that might be the best piece of war reporting on the nature of conflict I've ever read. So I'm a big fan of Younger. And Younger was one of those guys who, when I started reading about how he started, it was just he found an editor who was willing to, like, write on a piece of paper that Younger, you know, was working for him. And, you know, he just bought a plane ticket to Bosnia and kind of got his way into Sarajevo. Um, and so that, that's what I did, you know, when I, I, I just sort of went to Ukraine and then I went to Iraq and kind of tried to figure it out from there. Um uh, so that was that was sort of the guys who were big influences on me doing that sort of thing. Um, the first conflict I ever covered was the uh, the Maidan Revolution in 2013 and 14. And probably my biggest regret as a person is not flying out to Kiev the day I realized what was happening uh, and just being on the ground there. But I, I talked to a couple of dozen people over the course of a month or so while it was all going on. Um, and, and wrote that article about it. And was that was that uh, outside of like the personal experience umbrella? Just no, that was a personal experience it. article. Yeah, I thought so, yeah. I thought so because I was reading. I remember reading one on the on the Ukraine conflict when you were there. Uh, it was another extremely eye opening one. Is the personal experience thing um, something you're ever interested in returning to, or is that kind of that's a chapter that's come and gone for you? Yeah, no, I I, I wouldn't do that again. Um, it's uh it's an interesting kind of journalism it's it's more or less journal journalism i would say but it's not um 
there are some things I would not do again that I did there because it was sort of a different sort of format. Um, and I, I like, I mean, for one thing, the, 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 I, I, I no longer believe as much in the ability of that sort of reporting to change people's minds because of how polarized things have gotten, which is why I've, I've geared more towards selling tasks. Um, I think what they've done, and Elliot Higgins is, I, I think, one of the brightest, maybe the brightest spot in journalism right now, Bellingcat and Elliot Higgins, mm-hmm. um, because they're essentially applying, it's essentially the scientific method is applied to journalism, where there's no, you know, sources said, there's no, uh, there's no arguing really with their conclusions. Everything that they've all the and everything that everything's based on is available and you can look at, at all of the evidence yourself. And so when they say, you know, we have figured out that, you know, the Syrian government dropped chemical weapons on this town, all of the evidence for it is presented within the article and it's it's laid out in a very compelling manner. When they're saying, you know, we found that it was a Russian buck launcher that shot down uh, Malaysian Air, you know, one one seventeen or whatever number it was. Uh, there, the, the, the evidence is all laid out for you and it's pretty, uh, it's pretty hard to argue with, which I think is why they've done so much, like why they've had such an impact. You know, the, the Russian government, if the Russian government is attacking you on a daily basis, you're doing something right. Mm. Um, so I, I have a lot of, that's the thing that I, I guess, uh, that's the biggest bright spot in the field of journalism, in my opinion, right now. Cool. So, uh, moving on to uh, behind the bastards, uh, how how did the show come about? Did Jack bring you over uh, and ask you if you wanted to do something over there? Because I know he mo- he's he's head of that uh, How Stuff Works network now, right? Yeah. Um, so he yeah he left about a year before, or maybe more like six months before uh, everyone at Cracked got laid off. Um, yeah. I forget the exact amount of time. Um, but the, uh, uh, yeah, after we all got laid off, I don't know, a week or two after it, Jack sent me an email saying like, do you want to pitch a, a podcast? And I, I had the idea that became behind the bastards about a week before we all got laid off. The Actually, the day that we all got canned, I was going to present it to Alex Schmidt, our head of podcast, and pitch it. Um, and then we got laid off, uh, and so I brought it to Jack. And my idea at the start was to do basically a series of podcast mini-series, like a six-episode series on all the weird facts about the Nazis that nobody knows. And then i do a six-part series on the weird facts of Saddam's regime. And Jack was like, that's a great idea, but why don't you just do one episode at a time? And you can switch between a bunch of different topics and just do, like, the history of the worst people in history. Um, and then that, you know, that became behind the bastard, uh, who, who, uh, who coined the title that would be our sound, one of our sound engineers, uh, Nick, uh, Nick Stump. He came up with the title and I, I'm going to, I would say that's probably at least 40% of the, the podcast success. Um, <laughs> it, it's the best title. Anything I've been attached to has ever had. I'm very happy with the title. It makes it oh, hard yeah. to sell ads, but it's made it easy to build an audience. Yes. Um, so does your does that the format that you use where you you're the expert on a topic and you have a guest coming in cold 
that acts as sort of like a proxy for the audience for you to educate the audience. Does yeah. That have a, does that format have a name? Because I know uh, the dollop kind of does something like that, but they don't have a rotating cold guest. Yeah, but um, we were we and we had at the beginning we were considering having a regular guest, um, and we just decided it was better to have rotating guests when we get wider sort of varieties of experiences. Um, the dollop was explicitly our inspiration for the format because um, I pitched my idea and we decided what it was going to be. And we were trying to figure out how to present it. And Jack sent me the uh, the Enron episode of The Dollop. And so then it was like, oh, that's the way to do it. Um, yeah. So I, I, I definitely, I've I, I tried to be open about that, that our format is absolutely inspired by The Dollop. And I think The Dollop is a fantastic podcast. Um, uh, yeah. What's So what's the average preparation time for an episode? And uh, like how meticulous are the notes you're going over for the recording? I've heard you say sometimes you have like 21 pages of stuff. Yeah, that's pretty normal. An average episode is about 18 to 22 pages. Um, a three-parter will be 30 to 32, 33 pages. Um, yeah, I you know, the most recent episode, we just recorded our longest episode. It's going to drop next week. It's a three-parter on George Lincoln Rockwell, and that was about 13,000 words. Um, so usually a, a, a quick episode, one that comes together really easily, might just be 10 to 15 hours of research, and then another six to 10 hours of writing. I would say normally probably 20-ish hours of research. Some have been more like 40 or more. There's a lot of these, like I'm reading, I'm writing one on Chairman Mao right now. And the book that I'm reading is incredibly long. And so, and that's just one source because I never let myself have only one source. So by the time that one's finally done, it'll probably be more like 60 to 80 hours of research spread out over a couple of months. So I tried do to throw it. Hmm? Oh, do you have anyone assisting you with that? No, I don't, I don't think it would work if I did. Uh, because I have to come to a pretty good understanding of the subject matter before I can, like, I have to be able to answer questions, right? So I can't just take someone else's research and read a script. I have to study it well, well enough. Well, I'm, I'm, more, I'm more meant have someone, like, find things, help you find things that you would then read and imbibe, but... Um, no, I, I don't do that. Um, okay. I think for the second podcast I'm doing, we are going to hire a researcher to help um, just because it, it, those are more focused and I don't have a guest as much, so I, I don't need to be able to conversationally understand it as well. Uh, and having a research assistant will make it possible because I'm, I'm very slammed right now with stuff. Um, are most of your sources uh, from, would you say, like books or uh, Google Foo or going through like newspaper.com archives? Like what tools are you using for your research? I mean, Google's my big tool. Like I, I've been using Google for research for more than a decade now, and I'm, I'm very good at knowing how to ask it questions in order to get the kind of information I want. Um, so that's sort of what I do for the most part. I usually try, especially with the very com with the more complicated stories, uh, like I just did, a, I just did an episode on Jeffrey Epstein, and I didn't have a book for that because, like, there's no, I didn't find a book that was written about the whole thing. Although I think there is one, I found out later. So I just read every article I could find that anyone had written on Jeffrey Epstein in that case. Um, you know, with uh, the Saddam episode, I got lucky enough to find a free book online that was like a weird pro-Saddam biography, which I thought was really interesting because then I had a chance to sort of present him the way he wanted to be presented as well as 
present sort of the actual evidence that's, that's counter to, you know, like the, 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 the reality of the situation, which I think made that such an interesting episode. Um, I usually try, especially if I'm talking about a major figure like, uh, like Stalin or something, like for Stalin, my, my main source was in the court of the Red Tsar. But I try to never let, if I have a book as my main source, I try to always find six to ten outside sources, from, uh, or at least for different chunks. So I'm not, I don't ever want to just be rewriting one other person's research. I want it to be, since I am essentially taking a bunch of research, I'm not doing original research. I'm reading what other people have done for most of these. Um, I want to at least be synthesizing a bunch of people's research and, and presenting that to people because I think um, in that way I can provide something that the book can't. I don't ever want to just be, you know, telling people something that they could get from reading one book because uh, that doesn't feel right to me. Right. Um, so actually I went to uh, the Behind the Bastards Reddit and uh, I put out the call for, does anyone have any questions uh, for you? Um, and so one of the one of the fan questions I uh, got that was, I thought was interesting is who uh, who in your opinion is the best bastard you've profiled? Meaning, who is like the worst person that also did really good things that kind of balanced out their bastardry? I mean, no one that I've really covered so far, I'd say, has met that. Like, I, I guess Hitchcock would be the closest because his, um, mm. as far as we know. There was only one sexual assault, which is still terrible, obviously. I'm not saying it wasn't terrible, but, like, it happened very late in his career, so it, he made most of his movies before he did that. Uh, and I, I get the sense from him that he was always an unpleasant, gross person um, who gave in to his worst urges uh, at only one point in his life. Uh, and then, you know, his career kind of petered out after that. So I would say, of the bastards I've covered, he's the least terrible of the bastards yeah. I'm going to cover, I would say, I mean, I guess Churchill, because Churchill was a terrible person um, oh, and yeah. killed a lot of people, four and a half uh, Indians during the, the Bengal famine, like was a very, very bad man. But like he defined himself by his opposition to Hitler. And if, you know, it doesn't, it kind of doesn't matter how shitty you are. If the guy you're fighting is Hitler, um, it's yeah. really easy to look good. <laughs> Um, I guess, like, yeah, I, I, I guess he'd be probably the, the, the person you could, okay. yeah, that, that, that's right. I, I think, I, I think I agree with that. I can get behind that. Um, it, so, uh, is, is there anyone you're, you're interested in profiling, but you decided not to because of, I don't know, potential backlash and, and that leads into, have you, have you faced any, like concerning backlash or threats for taking such a strong stance against like alt-right and the fascists no i mean i've gotten a couple of death threats it's not that big a deal like it's not usually nothing that i considered very credible um uh, i like pissed off uh like hardcore leftists who think stalin got a bad rap when i did stalin every now and then i'll run into somebody like that who will yell at me on Twitter for being, and I'm sure when I do now, I'll get a lot of like revolutionary left radio people mm -hmm. whining at me for talking about Chairman Mao uh, in a negative light. Um, but I, I haven't, there's no, there's no person I haven't picked because of fear of backlash. Um, I don't really care about that. I'm, I'm willing to, to do whatever if they're terrible. 
I think yeah. I will never do Michael Jackson as a, a source or as a, a as a subject. Um, he definitely was a was a guy who did terrible things and probably qualifies as a bastard. But I don't know. Just having watched Leaving Neverland, which is again very damning documentary. I yeah, just, I just finished that like two nights ago. I just don't think I could do it in a way that people would want to listen to. Like he's, I don't know. It it. I might also I, I, he's I mean, if the things that he did that were awful that are alleged there, it's also coupled in like who damaged him and how warped does an individual come become from that much level of fame and celebrity? You know what I mean? I don't not that that's an excuse, but there's yeah. an element there's an element of sympathy I have, no matter how monstrous he is, that he was kind of consumed and chewed up and spit out and became whatever level of bastard he is. That's not really an issue for me because they're all like that. You look into Hitler's backstory, and that's like, true. That's true. He had a fucking rough go of it as a kid. Um, really, really tough childhood. Most of them do. Most really terrible people do. Um, it's just like I, I don't think I could write much about Michael Jackson because it was yeah I, yeah I, I just don't know. I, like entertaining is the wrong way, but there needs it needs to be a story that people want to listen to. You know, leaving Neverland works because you're seeing those people and you're walking through their experiences. And I don't know how to tell the story that wouldn't just be like taking down their dictation of like what they say in the documentary and rehashing that. Yeah, I might be able to do enough. If I did an episode on Michael Jackson, it would be an episode on the legal battle around everything and like what his lawyers did and what, you know, what he did in that context, how the cover up was executed. I might do an episode like that, but that's the only way I can see covering that guy. Yeah. Like, there does need to be, there are some terrible people I just haven't covered or won't cover. Cause I don't know that they're all that entertaining. Um, mm -hmm. that, that there's that much to say, that there's much to learn. Like that's why I don't, I'm, I'm not a big true crime guy. I don't listen to serial killer podcasts. Um, and I don't really want to do that. Like the, the, the Albert Fish episode we did because Maggie's related to the guy. And so I thought that was interesting. Um, but I'm just not that interested in nothing against people who enjoy those podcasts, but I'm not personally that interested in that, those kinds yeah. of guys. Um, cause I, I, I get it. If you're like, like, uh, what, what's his name? Pugin, uh, uh, the handsome guy, there's just a documentary about that murdered women and then had sex with their dead bodies or whatever. Like that guy, oh, that's what he was into and he didn't care about killing people, so he did it. I'm more interested in the guy like Saddam Hussein and like how he maintained power, how he came up, like how he, the yeah. sort of things that he put in place in his society to try to make it one that couldn't get away from him. Like I, that, that stuff interests me personally more. And this, the podcast is heavily driven by what I'm interested in that week. So you said that, um, you know, you kind of, uh, felt that the personal experience thing, it wasn't having like an impact in, in a way that you would hope it was. I think Do it did for a while. Well, no, I think it did. I think I, but I, I'm curious, uh, with this current show, have you heard from any listeners who started rethinking their political positions because of your work? I've heard from a lot of people who didn't know about someone or who didn't realize you know, how terrible an individual was, uh, and, and do now. And I've, I've heard from people who didn't realize a lot of the historical parallels and things like how the Nazis rose to power and stuff that's happening politically now. Um, I get a lot of messages like that. Um, 
And so that, uh, I feel like it's having more of an impact. I get a lot of people reaching out to me on a weekly basis um, about the impact the show's had or about like how a certain episode um, changed the way they thought about something. Um, and that's mm. part of why I'm so motivated to do it. I don't want to do anything that isn't having an impact. Um, you know, one of the things I would do a lot with the personal experience articles back in the day is I would, I would try to direct, since we were getting so many readers for a while, I would try to direct them towards donating to a specific cause or charity. And, you know, there were times we were capable of raising fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 for something. Um, I remember, I remember that yeah. from the, 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 the foot, the footer of most of the articles, there's a call yeah. to action that, that tied into the story. Um, and I'm a, that's really great. I'm a big believer in that journalism is a type of activism. Um, and while you need, there's a degree of, uh, of, of impartiality in order to like, you need to be dissecting this, not as a member of it, but you also need to have a, like, if you understand an issue well enough to write about it, you should know one or two things your readers can do to make a fucked up situation less fucked up. And I think that's part of your responsibility as a journalist to try to do that, to try to have an impact um, mm -hmm. on the situation for the better. And if you don't want to do that, why are you a journalist? Yeah, I was just listening. Uh, one of my favorite podcasts is um, Citations Needed. And they were talking about um, how uh, journalism used to be a much more blue collar profession. And now most like most of the people that work at the, the you know, like the, the pillar institutions like Washington Post and your they all have to have Ivy League degrees. And yeah. then there's also the matter of like everyone working in TV news is making exorbitant amounts of money and there's just this kind of detachment from the lives that most Americans lived from a lot of the journalism that they take in compared to how it was not too long ago I feel like mm -hmm. yeah it's a real problem um, I'm a big believer in the fact that journalists should have uh, they should have some real world experience uh, in something, you know, um, yeah. that's part of why I've spent so much time traveling and part of why it was always so important to me to get like face to face with refugees and face to face with refugee camps and with war and combat, because, uh, you should be experiencing things as a journalist. You should be spending as much time as you can interacting with unfamiliar parts of the world. Um, and I think that yeah, I'm not a big fan of TV news, and I, I honestly don't think it benefits us as a society to have it. I, I think we'd be better off without TV news, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I think it, it's, it's kind of toxic. Um, um, I'm curious about uh, your thoughts on the uh, Eric Prince, Mehdi Hassan interview. Uh, I watched that over the weekend. Um, did you think uh, Mehdi called bullshit on Prince enough to your satisfaction? Oh, I think he did a fantastic job. I think that there, there was no, I was, well, I was just curious specifically, if, are there any questions or follow-ups that in the, I know he did, I think he did a great job too, but uh, I was just curious with your knowledge of him, were there any follow-ups that you were, you were like, come on, bring this up? No, I, I think that, uh, I mean, there's other stuff he could have brought up, but like you, you have to, you do a lot better in a situation like that. If you kind of pick 
a limited number of things to really drill at because you only have the time uh, and ability to hit someone on a limited number of things. And I think Medi did the best possible job that could have been done of an interview with Eric Prince in that situation. Um, have you have you ever conducted a, a contentious interview with a subject? I mean, I imagine the hardest yeah. part is like retaining and recalling all the necessary facts and anticipating which lies you're going to have to push back on. Yeah, I mean, it's more just about knowing the truth. And if you have uh, like, like I, I had a contentious interview with J uh, Joey Gibson and Tessa Talatozzi of Patriot Prayer just a couple of months ago. And it was like a run and gun sort of thing. We were on the street at a protest and I was asking Tiny about his ties to American Guard, which is a far-right organization founded by a Klan's member um, that I knew about because he'd posted some Facebook photos like with uh, pictures of like the American Guard logo on his Facebook photo. And I drilled him on that and I finally got him like the only, the, the, the best response he can give me was that the guy was an ex-Klansman. And then I got into asking like, well, do you know if he's repudiated his views? Like, did he, uh, did, you know, I followed up on that line and just tried to like, get him to explain to me why he would want to be allied with an organization uh, that has Klansmen in it, like why he feels that's necessary. And with Joey Gibson, I held his feet to the fire on the fact that a guy named Joshua Sintel, who's a member of Patriot Prayer, had been threatening to stab people, um, which is obviously extra concerning because Je uh, Jeremy Christian, who also marched with Patriot Prayer, stabbed two people to death. So I you know, you get yelled at a lot and you have to not let it bother you. And you have to not be intimidated by these, you know, big guys who regularly commit assaults. Um, but it's just sort of the thing where, uh, I mean, it helps that I'm, I'm a taller guy. Uh, you just kind of have to know what the truth is and hit them on it as, as hard as you can. Um, yeah. So, um, I want to make sure uh, I get to your GoFundMe, uh, but I did have one last follow-up question on the bas on one of your bastards. Is uh, how have you how satisfied have you been with the mainstream coverage of Paul Manafort's conviction? Uh, I, I get frustrated at how much focus I see just on the Russia connections that are like you know tenuously damning to Trump, as opposed to all the awful shit he did unrelated to Trump that you covered. Yeah, I, I'm frustrated with it. I don't think. I don't think it's been very good. I don't think most coverage of Paul Manafort has really hit on the fact that he was literally like a bag man for multiple dictators and extended a civil war in Angola and helped start a war in Ukraine. Uh, I'm very frustrated by the fact that Manafort's treated like the thing that he did that's so noteworthy was be Trump's campaign manager. That's the least objectionable thing that Paul Manafort ever did. Um, do you think? Do you think your work is reaching any journalists? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm followed yeah. by quite a few of them. Um, Great. Yeah, I, uh, I've, I've actually am more connected to other journalists now than I ever was um, before because of the podcast. Because it's gotten very popular with guys like Jason Wilson and Dick Hanrahan, uh, and you know, a number of other uh, Alexander Reed Ross, who does a lot of great writing on fascism. Um, David Newart. Uh, so I, I've definitely gotten more connected to you know, people like Salome Anderson and stuff since I started. And so a lot of that came with Twitter, too, with just like uh, the fact that I'm on Twitter now when I really didn't use it much before. And, you know, journalists uh, hang out there. So this is like the first time in my life that I've had a lot of connections with other journalists. Uh, all the Bellingcat guys, Aaron Toller and Elliot Higgins. Yeah. Uh, 
Christian Trebert. Um, yeah. I saw I saw a reality check tweet from someone recently that was just like, remember, like three percent of people are on Twitter and one hundred percent of journalists. So, yeah, they take it gets taken a little too seriously sometimes. Um, yeah. So getting to you know your coverage and uh, dealing with the uh, the rise of fascists and their clashes with Antifa. Um, tell me about the the GoFundMe campaign you just kicked off that uh, I think it reached its goal in like a day or two. Um, yeah, it reached and... its goal in 24 hours, so I wound up expanding it. Um, that means I'll be able to do more stuff. Um, yeah, I'm, I've been really happy with it. Um, I didn't, like, so far it's all Twitter. I haven't plugged it in an episode yet. That I was actually expecting... It released early, but the episode that's plugging it runs next week. Um, so I kind of didn't expect it to do very much until the episode ran. But I'm almost at double my original goal so far, and the episodes haven't dropped. So that's been really interesting to learn what Twitter, like my Twitter following is really, how much support they're willing to put in. And so far it's been, you know, almost $8,400, which is great for four days. Um, it's incredible. Uh, and I'm excited to see how much more of the podcast is actually able to drive, drive towards the donation. Um, so I'm, what, it, what is the GoFundMe going to, what are you going to accomplish with the funds that you get from that then? Well, the first, I'm going to do that audio book first and release that. So that's the thing that, you know, is promised to the people as a result of the GoFundMe is I'm going to write and produce an audio book that'll be free and ad free for everybody to listen to. Um, I'm going to use a chunk. I mean, some of the funds will go to pay for me to exist and stuff. Uh, but I'm going to go, I'm right now in the early stages of planning a trip to Royava, uh, in Syria. Um, and I hope to be able to do that. Uh, I will be doing more reporting from up in Portland and from, you know, that'll allow me to buy tickets and stuff when there's other rallies this summer, between, you know, different far right and anti-fascist groups. So that'll allow me to do more of that and attend more of those. Um, there's some pipeline protests still going on around the East Coast that I'm interested in potentially, you know, showing up at and, and covering like I did Standing Rock. So, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, a lot of it's probably going to go towards the Syria trip. Um, and then hopefully I'll be able to, you know, spend the rest over the course of the next year to cover protests in the United States mostly. And I, I suspect I will do another one early next year to fund, you know, my, my coverage of the election year, you know, the DNC mm -hmm. and the RNC and whatever else I do. So um, I guess I'll wrap up. I wanted to know um, what's your feeling about how this is all going to end. I mean, I, there seems to be a belief among a lot of people that Trump is like the big baddie in a, the Lord of the Rings or Avengers where we get him out of office and all his supporters just collapse or evapor evaporate into a hateful red mist. Yeah, I, I don't know where things are going to go, and I don't think anybody does. Um, you know, the the next couple of years are very hard for me to uh, imagine or predict. Uh, I think the the issues of political division in this country are way more complicated than this Donald Trump, although he's one factor in it. Um, I think if we don't get a handle on how the internet radicalizes people uh, and how things like algorithms on YouTube radicalize people and push stuff like Holocaust denial and neo-Nazi propaganda. If we don't figure that out and figure out how to control these tech companies to a degree that makes them more responsible members of our community, 
uh, I'm very worried. You know, a lot of what we're seeing in the United States right now is similar to stuff that I saw in Ukraine right before the fighting started in Donbass. Um, and so some of that worries me. Uh, a lot of that worries me. Uh, I really don't know where things are going to go. And uh, so the, I guess my very last question would be, how do you keep yourself whole mired in the lives of the worst people in history? I do a lot of drugs. <laughs> I, I asked that question knowing that was the answer. Yeah. Um, I do need to read your books, by the way. I'm bad with books, though. I'm, uh, it's, it's tough for me, but I, I definitely um, they're back on my radar. Like, oh, yeah, I forgot about this whole other side of your work. Um, well, Robert, I want to, I want to thank you a lot for, uh, jumping on here. I think we've plugged all your pluggables. Um, and, uh, I hope you, uh, have a safe trip and I wish you best of luck in all of your, um, investigative endeavors and your career as a journalist. I think the world's, uh, going to be a much better place. The, the more your voice gets amplified and, and I, my hope is that you, you reach a, a level of, uh, I don't know, people are aware of you enough that, you no longer have to compete with the um, coked-up Hollywood mogul for <laughs> Google Google uh, results. Yeah, that's the dream, isn't it? Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, like any struggling podcast, I can always use a little iTunes love with a five-star rating or swing by the Facebook page, throw a like my way, maybe a couple of comments. And if you really, really like the show, you can kick a couple of bucks my way at patreon.com slash bzdug. That's B-Z-D-U-G. Okay, that's it. End of podcast. Enjoy whatever it is you're about to do next. Thanks. Bye.